Rum, rebels and ratbags. Hardcore history from the Transportation Nation with Dave Hunt and Dom Knight. Welcome to another hearty jot of rum, rebels and ratbags. Australian history like they never taught you at school. In our last episode, we left Arthur Phillip, governor-to-be of Britain's most distant colony, moored in the waters of Botany Bay with 11 boatloads of sheep thieves, forgers and friends of gypsies. David Hunt, if being in the company of gypsies for a month was a serious criminal offence in Britain, as we discovered last time, how did the gypsies themselves avoid prosecution? They never stayed in one place for very long. They always moved on before they could be charged with associating with themselves. Brilliant. So David Hunt is historian, author of Goethe and Authorised History of Australia, and our guide to Australia's fragrant and occasionally unwholesome past, himself a notorious friend of gypsies. In today's instalment, we look at Arthur Phillips' rule during the very first days of the British settlement of Australia, or the British invasion of Australia, of course, depending on your perspective. But the Aboriginal response to the white ghosts who arrive from across the sea requires an episode all of its own, which is going to come next time. And we're talking about Benelong, Barangaroo, Pemawai, and their friends and enemies. So, okay, it's David. So he left Arthur Phillip in Botany Bay on the 18th of January, 1788, uh, due to found a new society of criminals and their jailers. What do you make of Botany Bay? He'd gone there because our old mate Joseph Banks had told him what a wonderful place it was. Lots of vegetation. Lots of new and interesting plants. He commended its fertile soil and as an insult to just about every Australian, its European climate. And when Philip gets there, it's a completely different place. The so-called fertile soil is all sand and swamp. There's almost no fresh water. There's not a timber supply for him to build the new town he wants to build and the bay is too shallow for his ships to moor safely. He also discovers that there are a lot of ants. Yeah, Philip was very concerned about these ants. He reported, every part of the ground is in a manner covered with black and red ants of a most enormous size. And he decides he doesn't want to set up this his new society in a giant bull ant nest. He may also have found that the ground was covered not just with ants, but quite a few Aboriginal people as well. And this came as a real surprise to Philip because Banks had told him that there were hardly any Aboriginal people there and those that were were nomadic. So Banks says, don't worry, when you turn up, they'll wander off and nomad somewhere else. But they didn't. They stayed around and Philip was perplexed by this. Oh, when you've got a good water view, why would you go anywhere else? (laughs) All right, so he heads up the coast. But it's not just uh, Aborigines that he finds when he arrives at Botany Bay. There are also some French people there. This is the most shocking thing for Philip. He believes he's been cast out to, into this Garden of Eden where he won't see any other civilization, and he's going to be responsible for building a new society. And within days of him turning up, a boatload of, of 100 Frenchmen comes through into Botany Bay, parks the boat with his boats, and a guy called Jean-Francois de Gouloupe, who we know as La Perouse, the Count of La Perouse, gets out and says, this looks like a pretty nice place. I might stay here for a while. Bonjour. <laughs> Bonjour. All right, and of course, La Perouse has a suburb named after him these days. So Philip decides that, uh, look, if this is infested with French people, we might go and, up, up and the, Aborigines. We might go up the coast a little way. Yeah, he's looking for a better place to set up a convict colony. And Captain Cook had written about a harbour that laid to the north. He'd never actually gone inside it. And Philip decides he's going to sail up the coast with Lieutenant George Johnston and a few other officers, and he's going to explore this harbour. Pretty good decision. It was. 
he thinks this is a perfect place for British ships of the line. The water was deep. There was plenty of fresh water. And he names the harbour after his boss, Lord Sydney. OK. And the very first uh, European to set foot on uh, the was, shores was, of Sydney Cove? Was, it's probably George Johnston, the guy who had the illicit affair with Esther Abrams, the Jewish convict girl, which has now become well-known amongst all of the men. He's, he's formed this relationship with her and he's going to go and make a new life for himself there with her. So the reason why we celebrate the 26th of January is actually the foundation of Sydney. Yep, it's not actually when the first fleet arrived, which is what lots of people think. It's the date that Philip unloaded the first boatloads of male convicts, 26th of January 1788, he raises the Union flag and he claims possession of the area in the name of King George III and says, I'm here now. This is going to be part of the British Empire. Which is why it's Australia Day, but also Invasion Day to many people. Now, um, hadn't Cook already claimed things at Possession Island earlier on? Why did yeah, they need to do that? Part of the, the law in the day was you not only had to claim land in order to own it, you then had to occupy it. So whilst Cook had sort of put an ambit claim on Possession Island, it wasn't until the British actually sent people to settle the area that they had a claim that was legally defensible against other imperial powers. So the Dutch, over the matter of terra nullius, of course, as we heard before. We did. All right. So Philip unloads the convicts, uh, but he's got no prison to keep them in. What does he do to, to keep them uh, in line? The great advantage of being at the arse in the world thousands of miles away from Britain and living in a strange world where you're surrounded by bush, poisonous animals and hostile natives with pointy sticks. The convicts didn't feel they had anywhere to run away to until they realised that La Perouse was staying down in Botany Bay. He'd actually built a little fort down there, the first mainland fort in Australia. And so you have 400 convicts, once they're off their boats, going bush, scarpering for Botany Bay and trying to hitch, hitch a ride back to Europe with La Perouse. Taxi, yes. And uh, did, did that work out? Did he take any of them back? He took a woman called uh, Anne Smith and a French waiter. There's always a French waiter in every good story. Peter Paris was his name. He had been done in London for stealing tankards and silverware from his own restaurant. And so these guys hitch a lift with La Perouse, but it didn't end well for them because La Perouse is wrecked off the Solomon Islands, so they either drowned or ended up inside a cannibal. All right, so the rest of the convicts uh, hung their heads and headed back. They did. They went back and Philip said, no hard feelings, we're going to get down to building ourselves a new society now. All right, so the first convicts were unloaded on the 26th of Jan, but the female convicts were unloaded a few days later on. What happened then? This is one of these great scenes in Australian history, although some Australian historians like to downplay it or deny it happened. Surgeon Bowes wrote of what went down on the 6th of February. He writes, The men convicts got to them very soon after they landed. That's the women convicts. And it is beyond my ability to give a just description of the scene of debauchery and riot that ensued during the night. And a guy called Lieutenant Ralph Clark, who was the First Fleet's resident misogynist and hypocrite wrote of the Sydney camp I would call it by the name of Sodom for there is more sin committed in it than any other part of the world. So Robert Hughes in The Fatal Shore describes pouring rain thunder, flashing lightning 
illuminating this scene of a vast orgy of convicts and sailors sort of fornicating in the mud. And this is known as the Foundation Orgy. Um, <laughs> lots of other historians think Robert Hughes was a bit of an old perv and, oh. and, and was probably over-exaggerating a bit. But it's a great story. And certainly, as we know, there were plenty of uh, sex workers on the, on the boats who'd probably already had a little bit of action on the way. All right, now, despite that uh, fairly wild start to the colony, mm. Philip had a really rather utopian vision for the society he wanted to build. Yeah, he wants to build a town called Albion. And it's going to be this beautiful town with straight streets, neat houses and gardens, no shops, because Philip believed, he didn't believe in trade. He wanted to set up a society full of small farmers where everybody would take turns to dig up the communal turnip or milk the communal goat. It's kind of a kibbutz, really. Yep, it, exactly. He comes up with the idea of a society with Nepean. They plan a society without money. This is unique in the settlement of any part of the world where things are going to get exchanged by way of barter, people are going to work these small farms. He basically comes up with the idea of socialism before Marx and Engels some 60 years earlier. Something tells me, David, that um, things didn't quite turn out like that, a, a, a cash-free paradise. No, look, it was pure fantasy. His idea of this glowing town, this model town, was a figment of his own imagination. The town remained tense, badly constructed, muddy tracks. He's got one of the only buildings in New South Wales. It's a do-it-yourself government house. He's <laughs> packed from Britain. A kid home. It's, it's, it's like something from Ikea, except without the Allen key. And so he builds himself this, this government house, do-it-yourself government house. It's neither wind nor waterproof. He gets this aching pain in his kidneys which he complained about for the next several years in letters back to Britain. And it wasn't just that in that way that his utopian dream was dashed. Of course, the convicts, even though they had no money, were going to trade for goods. And so this barter economy develops where people traded handkerchiefs for work, but most importantly, they traded rum. And so rum becomes the de facto currency of choice yes, in the colony. If you're planning a colony... At any point in your life, you might bear in mind that if you don't have money, rum is the thing that people are going to start trading alcohol. Uh, all right. And uh, there were some health problems, not just for Philip, but for some of the convicts as well. They've come to the place with only two years' worth of food because banks has convinced them that you are going to be able to encourage all of these fat young wallabies to hop into your frying pans. You're going to be able to plant fields of wheat and corn that'll spring up overnight. And Sydney just wasn't like that. Yes, and Philip was far too far away to complain, really, wasn't he? He was. Sydney has really, really rocky soil, which is really hard to plough, which was actually lucky because although the colonists had 12 ploughs, they didn't have any beasts to pull them. So the ground had to be hoed by hand, which is backbreaking work. And then once they finally get some food crops growing, these swarms of marsupial rats descend on the crops, eating them. And so what's left is, is not nearly enough to feed the colony. What about some animals? They brought some uh, livestock with them all the way across the ocean, which yeah. is fairly extraordinary in and of itself. Well, most of the goats and chickens had been wiped out in an accident at sea where the chicken coop flew into the goat pen. Flew the coop. Flew the coop. Most of the sheep had died of seasickness. There were five cows, and within months of arriving, all of the cows but, uh, but one escape, and the one cow is insane with loneliness. and any, it, I know, it's very sad. Anytime somebody tries to milk it, it attacks them. And in the end, 
the sole surviving cow in the colony is shot in self-defence. A mad cow, okay. Some some issues as well with dingoes and, and uh, other things preying on the, the Ding- other Dingoes livestock. wiped out the sheep. You had blowflies, which they didn't have in Britain. It wasn't a livestock-friendly pies. The only animals that coped really well were the pigs, and these were let loose outside of the towns. And the settlers would hear the delighted cries of the Aboriginal people who just discovered this wonderful new tasty animal and were having their first bacon sandwiches. So they bring all of the pigs back into the town and then the pigs start breaking into their tents and huts and eating their supplies. So food is becoming a real problem at the moment. So some pretty major issues with food in New South Wales in its early days. And the convicts started to... uh rebel somewhat as well. They didn't quite buy into Philip's utopian vision. Yeah, the convicts soon realised that they had the power. They controlled all of the means of production in the colony. They were doing all the work. There is power in a union. There is power in a union. The workers untied will never be defeated. (laughs) So these convicts are saying... That's very good. These convicts are saying, we're not going to do the work you want us to do. And they started negotiating. They ran a series of sort of successful industrial campaigns. They said, we're not going to work standard hours. We're only going to hoe 88 yards a day. And that didn't take them that long. And then when they finished that, they knocked off and did whatever they wanted to do. By 1792, they'd negotiated this down to 38 yards. So farming was not very efficient because the people doing it were doing the bare minimum. How extraordinary. So even in those days, we had uh, industrial relations disputes. It's the start of a popular culture yeah. of industrial rotting in Australia. Philip had uh, very little grounds to be able to bring in anything like work choices and was really re- relying on uh, the, the convicts, I guess, for the farming. So the system somewhat uh, badly designed in that sense. And there was a genuine risk in those days of starvation and the whole colony just dying of hunger. Yeah, Philip is getting increasingly worried. So is everybody else. They start cutting down on their rations, and then food theft starts. So a guy called Thomas Hill steals some bread and is then sentenced to a bread and water diet. And this didn't have the necessary deterrent effect. He just thought, great, I've got a, great, I've got a feed for a week. So ironically, the people who were transported for stealing food had to go and steal more of it before too long. Absolutely. The first person who was hanged in Australia is a guy called Thomas Barrett. He is hanged from, for stealing peas and pork from the, the government store. And this guy is a really talented artist. He is responsible for the first work of art in the colony. He creates out of a kidney dish given to him by the surgeon a beautiful silver medallion called the Charlotte Medallion, which recounts the voyage and landing of the convict ship, the Charlotte, in New South Wales. So we get a good artist in the colony, and the first thing we do is we hang him. It's also at this time that we have our first bush ranger who actually had uh, African heritage. Yeah, this is a guy called Black Caesar, who's a giant Mauritian convict, probably probably from Mauritius. He goes bush and he starts stealing food from other people, but they treat him differently. Because he's so big and strong, he was the colony's best worker, so they gave him some leeway. Every time he stole something, they'd park him out on Garden Island in the middle of the harbour to think about his sins and then bring him back. But he's gone down on history as the first man to take to the bush and take up a life of theft. So he is our first bush ranger. Yeah. Now, the colony's first uh, first churchman begs for help. He writes back to the, to the government in England requesting additional ships and, and more food. Well, he, he sends this letter, but 
unfortunately there's no ship for it to go back on. He asked to take us all back to England or to some other place more likely to answer than this poor wretched country where scarcely anything is to be seen but rocks or eaten by rats. So you can see when the guy in charge of spiritual morale is so miserable, things aren't going really well. And poor old Reverend Johnson was having a really, really bad time. People weren't attending his uh, his sermons? People were forced to attend his sermons, but they'd be held in a field. Nobody would build him a church. And he can see all of these taverns and brothels being built around him, and nobody will give him money to build a church. Finally, he does it out of his own pocket. He builds this little wooden church himself to hold his services in, and within a couple of weeks, one of the colony's more enthusiastic arsonists probably an atheist, burns it down to the ground. So, David Hunt, you said a short while ago that um, the the vision for the new colony was to have alcohol restrictions, Mm. and yet they're building taverns. There was absolutely no way to control the black market in alcohol. The sailors and marines had access to the stuff, and they'd trade it to the convicts for favours. You come and do my gardening for me, I'll give you a bottle of rum. You come and be my girlfriend, I'll give you a bottle of rum. And as well as this trade, illicit trade in alcohol, you've got people setting up their stills, as they always do. Home brewing, moonshining, incredibly popular. Because it was part of British culture to get absolutely neutered. The British distrusted water, not only for bathing in, but for drinking, because they believed it carried disease. So alcohol alcohol Mm. was actually considered as a healthy drink. You pickle yourself as a health measure. Absolutely. Pickled from the inside. And it became the de facto currency. As you said, if it's bartered for favours and, and so on and so forth, it's an in- integral part of the early days, thus uh, starting a very, very long tradition of the English uh, getting smashed in the rocks. <laughs> on the rocks. On the rocks. The sort of alcoholic excess is actually built into the very name of Sydney. Really? Yeah. Sydney was named after Lord Sydney, but mm. that name derives from Saint-Denis, the French Saint Denis, who was the patron saint of headaches and hangovers. He was also known as Saint Dionysius. Oh. And Dionysius is the Greek god of wine, drunkenness, wild orgies, people getting trashed and having a good time. So when they got off the boat, had a massive orgy, and then essentially drank themselves silly for the, next, for the first few years. They were living up to their name. They were, yeah, what else would you do with a place called Sydney? There yeah. you go. So the idealistic Philip uh, finds that the colony isn't quite developing as he would have liked. How does he react? How does he treat the convicts? He continues to be really, really calm, methodical, level-headed. He continues with this policy of equal rations for convicts and their guards. He continues to allow the convicts to do what they want with their lives outside of work hours. So they develop their little gardens. They're leading a pretty comfortable life apart from the ongoing pressures of the lack of food. But he did forget one very important thing when he left uh, England. He did. He actually although he remembered to pack the sauerkraut and the size and the shoes, he forgot to pack a record of all of the convict sentences. Whoops. He had absolutely no idea how long people were meant to serve time for before they were free men. So you've got James Roos, who later becomes critical to providing food within the colony as a farmer. And high HSC marks. (laughs) Yes. Uh, So you've got James Roos coming up to Philip and saying... Rodder, my sentence is up. And Philip says, um, look, I'm, I'm sorry, mate. I don't know whether that's true or not. You're just going to have to keep on being a convict until somebody sends out your, your court records on the boat. So we get a backup. Mm. 
the convicts weren't very impressed with that. <laughs> All right. And he's also having trouble with the Marines as well, who, as you said before, thought that their gig was only to defend the colony from mm. uh, foreign invaders. The Marines under Robert Ross are, most of them, incredibly lazy, and most of them are just waiting to catch a boat back home. They see it as their job to fight any Russians or French or anybody else in the area, and they're not going to do any other work. Because the Marines actually refuse to police the convicts, Philip sets up a convict police force. And those police officers, who are themselves criminals, take a particular delight in arresting the Marines. So you've got this incredible turning of the tables where the inmates are taking over the asylum. It's all very underbelly, isn't it? (laughs) And Major Ross is furious that his men are getting arrested by convicts and then when Philip actually hangs seven of his soldiers for raiding the government food stores, he comes very close to actual mutiny. He tells his Marines, you've got to boycott jury duty. And at the time, only soldiers could serve on uh, juries because Philip believed in being judged by your peers as long as your peers weren't criminals. And given everybody was a criminal down there, Ross was going to shut down the legal system by saying, you're not going to do any court work. All right, so there's a bunch of tension happening around Sydney, but uh, Philip has also tried to establish a satellite settlement at Norfolk Island. What were they hoping to do there? Yeah, Norfolk Island is actually set up within weeks of the First Fleet arriving. He sends Philip Gidley King, who later becomes a governor of New South Wales, to establish a convict settlement on Norfolk Island. And the aim is that they will fell timber for ship's masts and they'll grow some good hemp um, to make ship's sails. To do some of the stuff you can't do in Sydney because of its soil. Yep. Joseph Banks had recommended Norfolk Island as a place for growing hemp. And so this was going to become the dope capital of the Southern Hemisphere. But what is good about Norfolk Island is it was good at at, at growing food. So in Norfolk Island, they didn't have the same sorts of food shortages that they had in Sydney. And many of the people up there, as they were in Sydney, started to go native. So you've got Philip Gidley King shakes up with his convict housekeeper has two children with her. And these sorts of liaisons between soldiers and convicts are forming all of the time. And it's had a great levelling effect in many ways on our society. There was a lot more social mobility enabled in this new world than would have ever been possible back in Britain. Quite possibly why Australians still don't like people uh, in positions of authority today. Now, uh, Philip tries to deal with the head of the Marines, Ross, by dispatching him to Norfolk Island. Yeah, Ross is causing chaos in Sydney. He's disobeying Philip's commands. And so Philip says, I'm going to get him as far away from me as possible. He sends him up to replace King. And Ross sets up his own strange little society. He introduces his own strange judicial system. Every time a sow dies, he holds a formal coronial inquest. And unless it is established that the sow died of natural causes, he beats all of the convicts. He sends the convicts out, gives them blocks of land and sets up competitions between them as to who can produce the most corn. It's like something out of Survivor, these teams of people sort of fighting for the grand prize of Ross's approval. But they soon realise that the best way of giving Ross the most corn was not to grow it, but was to steal it from each other. So you've got this sort of dysfunctional society going on on Norfolk Island under Ross. 
Whoops. Uh, he also sends uh, Captain John Hunter, who goes on to replace Philip as governor, mm. uh, to Norfolk Island to try and get some of this food that they're growing. He's actually sent the colony's only supply ship, the Sirius. The First Fleet had another ship called the Supply, which confusingly was not a supply ship. But he sends Hunter and the Sirius up to Norfolk Island just as a stopover. He's wanting to send them off to China to, to basically get enough takeaway to feed the whole colony until another boatload of British ships comes. But when he stops off at Norfolk Island, Hunter runs the colony's only supply ship onto the reef. Ross loses all of his worldly possessions. The colony loses its only supply ship. And the convicts who are sent to salvage the ship get drunk on all of its rum and then set it alight. So this is an absolute disaster for this new society. They've lost their only real source of contact with the outside world. And it's at this point that uh, starvation becomes a, a huge threat. Yeah, the food supply has been getting lower and lower and lower. Philip is beginning to cut rations for everybody. Including uh, the bread roll ration. Philip is famous for maintaining social decorum. In He has these wonderful dinner parties at Government House where he says to all of the officers attending, you must bring your own bread rolls. Things are so dire that they've got to leave their own bread rolls at the door. The colony's judicial officer, a guy called David Collins, is so worried that he holds a formal judicial inquiry into the theft of a cabbage. Philip decides that he needs to stop the convicts from getting at the grain crops, and he does this by soaking them in tubs of urine. But even that doesn't deter the convicts. They are quite happy to dig in. And so Yuck. everything's going to hell in a handbasket. Okay, so they're, they're, they're really struggling here. They're uh, even making convicts work naked, and um, there's a, a limitation even on shoes. They're running out of everything. Yeah, they've run out of clothes. You've got convicts working in the nude in the fields. Philip says there's a shoe embargo. We're only going to give shoes to the hardest working convicts. And so you've got a whole lot of nude, starving convicts desperately waiting for some sign that the British Empire remembers that they actually exist. And they set up this signal uh, on, on South Head where they wave red distress flags and as soon as they leave for any length of time, the local Aboriginal people tear down the red flags and sort of make them into strange headdresses for themselves. So they've all got these red bandanas, you know, rather like Peter Fitzsimons. There you go. No wonder he's such an eminent historian. All right, so eventually a ship does turn up, the Lady Juliana. Yeah, the love boat, as it was known, or it was also known as the floating brothel. And this is the first ship that has come into the starving colony. It doesn't have any supplies. What it does have, in the words of Collins, is a cargo so unnecessary and so unprofitable as 222 females instead of a cargo of provisions. How extraordinary. So they were so worried about um, homosexuality that before sending any food, they sent a bunch of women essentially for the purposes of fornication. Well, they were, they were convict women, but the vast majority of them were London prostitutes. There were a few others. One, one was Mary Wade. She was the youngest convict aboard at the age of 11, and she became known as the mother of Australia. She had 21 kids. By the time she was 82, when she died, she had 300 living relatives. She now has tens of thousands of, of descendants in Australia, including Kevin Rudd. So if it wasn't for a boatload of prostitutes 
being shipped into Australia in 1790, we wouldn't have the Rudster. What a huge relief. Right. So this boat comes well before the second fleet arrives, but eventually Britain decides to send a ship that does actually have food on it. Yeah, the second fleet, there's a supply ship, and that arrives before these convict transports. These ships all arrive within weeks of the Lady Juliana. And this is nothing like the first fleet at all. The government back in Britain had given the contract to transport the convicts to some slavers, Camden, Calvert and King. And they changed the pricing policy for the delivery of convicts. When the first fleet was sent out, the private contractors got paid for every convict unloaded in Botany Bay. They reversed that and the second fleet contractors were paid for every convict loaded in England. You can see the obvious flaw with that. You can. There was actually a real economic incentive to eliminate as many of the convicts as possible en route. How many made it in the second fleet? About 25% of the convicts died compared with the 2% on Phillips Voyage and over a third on the worst of all of the ships, the one that brought my ancestors out, the Neptune. And when the fleet arrived in Sydney, there were these corpses being thrown overboard. You've got people who are starving, who crawl into rowboats and expire on the way back to shore. There are these hastily dug mass graves and dingoes howling as they dig them up. It's like a scene out of the inferno. It's, it, it was truly hellish what went down. All right, so uh, the, the second fleet limps in with lots of deaths on board. What happens um, food-wise? How do they solve the starvation problem? Well, the supply ship with the second fleet did bring some, some much-needed supplies, but also some emancipated convicts and also brought out the records um, of, of the convicts. So James Roos is now given a plot of land and becomes the first farmer to actually to produce enough food to feed his family without relying on the government stores. And he does that by copying the way the Aborigines look after the land. He looks at their fire management practices and starts burning tree stumps and things for fertiliser and produces the first really, really good wheat crops. You've got more ships coming in, there are more skilled convicts, there are some free settlers, and they start to build a society that is capable of being self-sustaining. And, and they find some fertile soil as well. They go out west of Sydney to the Cumberland Plains in the area around Parramatta. And these floodplains are incredibly fertile. They produce great crops. Every few years, the colony, though, would fall into starvation again when the Hawkesbury and the Nepean River flood and, and drown all the crops. But, but they were making a go as farmers. And even Reverend Johnson, who was a terrible clergyman, he becomes... New South Wales' most successful cucumber grower. Did the convict go and uh, vandalise his cucumber plants as well? I, I reckon Reverend Johnson would have been wanting to put Thomas Chaddock on the first boat back to Jamaica. All right, so they finally started to become mm. somewhat self-sufficient. Mm. And in this uh, supposedly utopian colony, there is one group that's just a little bit different from everyone else, the Irish. They were very, very special. There were a few Irish people sent out on the first fleet, but none actually from Ireland. They were all Irishmen living in London. All of the Irish convicts until 1792 had actually been sent to a place called Sydney in Canada, this incredibly cold, freezing convict hellhole. So they're being told, you're packing your bags for Sydney, or oh, that'll be all right then, it'll be lovely and warm. And they go and freeze in Nova Scotia. 
the first boatload of Irish convicts from Ireland come in in 1792 on a ship called the Queen. And they immediately distinguish themselves with the other convicts for their desire to escape. And they have heard that China lies only 300 miles to the north. And so they decide that they will make a mass breakout and walk to China. So about 30 of them escape, and the leader of these Irishmen has a sheet of paper on which he's drawn an arrow, and this is their compass. And every time he runs into an obstacle, he simply turns his little bit of paper around and they all set off in another direction. And they manage to escape an impressive 26 miles somewhere up near Palm Beach before they begin straggling back into Sydney. Several of them had been killed by the Aborigines, others had eaten poisonous berries, and this was the start of the Australians thinking these Irish people are a really strange, strange bunch. I'm not even going to make a joke about an Irish compass. <laughs> what point does Arthur Philip get sent back to England? He's stayed in the colony for four years. Uh, he leaves after numerous letters back to the Home Secretary complaining of how cold he's feeling, how he's got achy bones and a pain in his kidneys. He's finally allowed to go home in 1792. And we owe him today a huge tribute. He managed to set up a new society. He got it through these early growing pains and he fosters this notion of convicts and people pulling together, working together for a common purpose. And although he didn't have his beautiful utopian vision realised, he's left a great legacy for us today. Yes, the idea of the convicts and the uh, the authorities getting the same grain supply, that really, I guess, set, set a mentality that continues today. Then he goes back to Britain. He meets a woman in a library, as one does, and marries her, and she basically makes the remainder of his life in absolute bloody misery. She's, so? She accuses him of having wild affairs, treating her badly, and Philip is the gentlest, most considerate of husbands, and he spends the next 20 years of his life being nagged and, and harassed by... And so continues to go to sea. He, he, he spends an increasing amount of time at sea in a sort of British dad's dad's navy, all these old codgers on boats protecting the, the coast of England, and he spends many happy days at sea avoiding his wife, yeah. So when Philip left for England, he took two Aboriginal warriors with him by the names of Benelong and Yamarawani. They were the first Aussie backpackers. We're going to find out more about them in our next podcast. Don't forget, you can listen to us on SoundCloud, the ABC Radio app, or your favourite podcasting app. And, of course, on iTunes. Feel free to go and uh, give us a rating if you so desire. And we'll catch you next time on Rum, Rebels and Ratbags. See you, Dom.